Hey there, listeners. This is Jonathan Tepperman, Foreign Policy's Editor-at-Large, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. So as you may know, this is a podcast about podcasts. Each week, what I try to do is help you sort through the huge number of other podcasts out there by finding and recommending one show from somewhere around the world I think is worth listening to. Today, we're featuring the Iran podcast. As the name suggests, this series, which was created and is hosted by Nagar Mortazavi, an independent journalist, focuses on, well, Iran. What Nagar does really well is get beyond the headlines and the media's constant focus on security issues to find other, less bomb-centric ways to discuss the Islamic Republic. In the episode we're featuring today, for example, she talks to Human Majd, another Iranian-American journalist, about his experiences in both countries, Iran and the US, and what it's like trying to report on and write about his homeland as a dual national. That episode was called The Ayatollahs No Longer Differ and was first aired November 28th. I'm going to play it for you in a few minutes. Before I do, though, here's a short conversation I recently had with Nagar about the series. Nagar, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, So let me start with the question about the origin story, which is something that I always ask. How did the Iran podcast come into being? Well, part of the story is the pandemic story, like everyone else getting stuck at home and working from home and having a lot of time. But I've also been thinking about this as a project for a very long time because I feel like there was a gap or a void or a need, basically, for some long-form, deeper discussions on Iran that is missing from the mainstream media. As you know, it's always the nuclear program, and it's usually the five, ten-minute hit that people hear about. And it's also the usual suspects. There's a number of guests, experts, many of them actually not Iranian, who are always on mainstream media and it's mostly about the nuclear program or the political fight between Iran and the US. I wanted to take the audience beyond, first of all, the usual topics and also bring in younger voices, more Iranian voices. I try to bring a lot of women who can talk about these topics in a longer form, not having to worry about the two minute TV deadline, and also to bring in these other topics that are of interest to the uh, mainstream discussions on Iran. If you could say a little bit more about the similarities and differences between um, the media in Iran and the United States. Now, there's a very obvious difference, which is that um, there's state censorship in Iran and there isn't in the United States. But um, I'm curious whether there are actually similarities despite that fact. There's this famous saying among Iranian journalists that there is freedom of speech in Iran, but there's no freedom after speech. So there's a lot of things that are said, you just get into trouble for them later, you might end up, you know, being arrested or in jail. So but what I want to be fair to Iranian journalists and the Iranian media, they have been pushing the boundaries of the censorship, the red lines, as we call it, very much putting themselves in a lot of trouble, doing a lot of work that is considered just normal journalism here in the US, it actually takes a lot of courage. People get can get in jail for tweets, but they still tweet them, they still write them, they still put themselves in that risk. So in that sense, I have a lot of respect for, for anyone who does um, serious journalism in Iran. And then as far as similarities, I think there's one similarity between 
the media in Iran and the media in the US is the misperception about the other. The lack of access that American journalists have in Iran mm -hmm. is very similar to the lack of access for Iranian journalists who can't come to the US and also the politics between the two countries that has really overshadowed media coverage um, and affected it. The topics they cover, the way they have to cover it, and just the, the look on the other side um, is very much affected by the four decades political animosity. So given that um, lack, of, lack of access, what do you think is the biggest thing that Americans get wrong about Iran these days and that Iranians get wrong about the United States? Iran as a country, state, nation is a monolith. I think that's the most common sense that you get, even people who are looking for nuance. And that's actually one thing that I'm trying to bring with these longer conversations is nuance, mm. not necessarily a lot of new information, but nuance. I think there's this lack of nuance and assuming that all, there's there's one regime as if it's one person uh, that's the entire political system and also the differentiation between Iranian society and the system and also the gaps within the Iranian society. I think in general, what I want to say is that Iranians have more material and more access to cultural products about America to understand the nuances and the differences um, than Americans have about Iran because there's there's a lot of products about Iran and material but it's all in Farsi or Persian mm -hmm. and if it's not translated into English it's hard for Americans to access. So this is not a question strictly about the podcast but since um, I have you I have to ask how um, optimistic or pessimistic are you about the prospects of a new nuclear deal or return to the existing nuclear deal? I'm, I try to think of myself as an optimistic person, and I still have hope that this would happen just because I think it's so easy because the deal already exists. They just literally have to sit back at the table together. But I have to be honest, I expected this to happen much faster and simpler, and it seems like not the technicality and the logistics, but the political capital that both sides need to spend is, is a lot is entangled in their domestic fights and it's just taking time and that delay is worrying me because it's another one of those um, instances that the window of opportunity is closing soon so hopefully they'll do it sooner than later why do you say it's closing soon what do you, what will happen if they don't move fast because there is a presidential election happening in june in iran this administration will change it's very likely a hardline administration would come and that could bring us back to the cycle of the mahmoud ahmadinejad on one side mm -hmm and the Obama team on this side, the two sides trying to meet or trying to talk, but never moving any further than just the, the negotiating table. And that could bring them to an impasse for the rest of Joe Biden's one or even two term mm -hmm. presidency with a hardline president in Iran. Nagar Mortazavi, host of the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for talking. Thanks, John. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. And that was Nagar Mortazavi. 
Now here's the episode we promised. The Ayatollahs no longer differ. Hello and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we discuss U.S.-Iran tensions from the unique perspective of an Iranian-American journalist and author who understands and explains both countries very well. My guest today is Human Majd, an Iranian-American author and journalist based in New York. He has written three important books on Iran, The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, The Ayatollah's Democracy, and the Ministry of Guidance invites you to not stay. Human, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being with me. Um, let's start from, I know you were born in Tehran, Iran, to a diplomatic yes. family and then raised and educated in the West, attended school in London, college in Washington, D.C. Let's talk about, let's start from the beginning a little bit and um, how, how that upbringing um, went for you in a diplomatic family and then coincided with the Iranian revolution at some point. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was born in Iran, as I've, uh, I've said in other interviews, but unfortunately never really um, raised there and never was schooled there, which is why my Persian language skills are, are not as good as they should be. Uh, as with most Iranian families, if you live outside the country, your parents you know, we'll speak to you in, in Persian and you'll reply to them in English if you're going mm -hmm. to American schools or English schools. So I, I, I can speak Persian. I do speak Persian and it's relatively accentless, uh, but I'm sometimes shy to speak it among Iranians because um, I don't intentionally do this, but English words find their way into my conversation. Mm -hmm. And I find that embarrassing. I wish I could speak it fluently without ever using an English word. That's but, the case uh, for all of us. Yeah. I so, grew up in Iran, spoke Persian, but it still happens. Yeah. And I, I think it's I think it's happening more and more now because so many more Iranians are in the diaspora than when I was growing up. Um, there was there wasn't a diaspora when I was growing up. Um, but yeah, I, I, for me, being in a diplomatic family, that's all I knew was to not have a home. Um, for me, I was eight months old when we went left Tehran. So I, obviously I was a baby and, and, and not really cognizant of my surroundings. And so, you know, first to London for three years and then to San Francisco where my dad was in the Iranian, Iran had a consulate in San Francisco. Back then San Francisco was way more important than Los Angeles. Los Angeles was um, kind of a backwater of California, but it was basically the entertainment business and a couple of big aerospace firms. But San Francisco was the kind of the heart of California. So that's where um, the consulate was. My dad was there. So I went to kindergarten in first grade, part of first grade in San Francisco, and then off to India, and then from India to Tehran for like a year, I think it was, or less than a year, like eight months, where I went to the American school in Tehran because it didn't make sense if we we're going to be there for less than a year to try to go to Persian school and then have to learn Persian and reading and writing. So we just went to the American school there and then off to uh, Tunisia and then to London again and, and then back to the States. So just growing up all over the place. And I, I thought that that was, you know, normal. That's what, that's what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. um, which is why, you know, later on in life at, when I was in college, I decided that actually I kind of want to be a diplomat because I can't imagine myself living in one place 
um, for the rest of my life. So uh, I had planned to go back to Iran, learn how to read and write Persian, and then apply to the foreign ministry and try to, you know, get get a get a job as a diplomat and a career as a diplomat. Unfortunately, or for me, unfortunately, but maybe for some other Iranians, not so unfortunately, the uh, revolution the revolution interfered with that plan. So, um, so yeah, so I I I, I stayed at that point because uh, my father was our ambassador, Iran's ambassador to Japan at the time of the revolution. And uh, obviously he was recalled and for you know a number of years didn't go back to Iran based on advice from family who were in Iran and who had access to uh, you know the, the revolutionary government. So he didn't go back for a while. And of course, myself and my brother and my sister didn't go back either. And uh, long story short, here I am 42 years later. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and uh, never thinking that I'd be living in one place for so long. And I've been in New York for you know 30 years. Mm. You had this one episode, and you talk about it in your in your last book, The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Stay, where you tried to move back and live in Iran and wrote this book about it. Tell us about that episode with your wife, your um, baby, your child, basically, in that year that you spent in Iran. Yeah, the year was was interesting. I'd been going back and forth. I, I, I started going to Iran um, after my career in the music business and film business. Uh, and as a, as a journalist, I started going back to Iran in the early 2000s. Uh, when Khatami was president, and it was uh, mm -hmm. relatively open, it had become a relatively open society uh, compared to, I would say, you know, certainly the past 30 years, the previous 30 years, and probably um, in some instances more open than the Ahmadinejad years, or even today with a sort of security state where, you know, dual citizens are very suspect. There were plenty of dual citizens who were able to go. I, I, I didn't have a passport, um, an updated passport for many years, but I got one under the Khatami, in the Khatami years, and I, I started going to Iran. And there was something very unfamiliar about Iran for me because I hadn't been there in, in 40 years. And there was something at the same time very familiar. I don't know, you know, when you're born somewhere and, you know, the smells of that place sort of kind of lodge themselves in your deep memory. And when you're back there, you know, mm -hmm. even if it's 40 or 50 years later, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's there. Um, so I, there was something very familiar about it at the same time as being unfamiliar. And I thought, you know, at my age, it's it would be really good for me uh, to have that experience of not just dropping in for a couple of weeks and knowing that I'm leaving after a couple of weeks and having a good time. I mean, Iranian dual citizens used to, at least before all these arrests happened, Iran, have a good time, journalists included, um, going to Iran. I mean, you'd go to parties, you'd, you'd have meetings, you'd have interviews, and um, you really see the best of Iran in, in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought, I, I want to see the best of Iran. Sure, I've seen the best of Iran, but I also want to experience the worst of it without going to jail. I mean, that's the real worst <laughs> of it is, is ending up in jail. But I mean, seeing the worst, seeing what it feels like for people to work and live in a country. Uh, of course, I was understood that I'm very privileged. I wasn't going to be living in a hovel. I wasn't going to be starving. I wasn't going to be not being able to afford to have, you know, 
diapers for my kid or pampers for my kid not being you know you know what i mean so i was mm -hmm. living a privileged life mm -hmm. nonetheless i would want to ride i would ride the subway ride the buses every day you know just try to be live go to the grocery store myself you know buy things off the street try to live as i would assume most iranians would say a you know middle to upper class existence because i'm not going to subject my family to you know uh, trying to struggle to survive so um yes i was privileged and i i did this with the knowledge that i was going to write a book about it and this was going to mm -hmm. be sort of a memoir but also kind of trying to understand iran and the dynamics in society and in the political sphere better than just dropping in for a couple of weeks or three weeks writing some articles or even you know create uh, preparing research for a book to actually experience life there and uh, i think it was a it was it was a great experience it started to get a little a little uncomfortable toward the end of my stay there so after about nine months uh you know getting phone calls from you know unlisted numbers which only government people can have um security services and government people and and kind of like a few warning shots basically um so i i decided that it wasn't worth staying much longer than that. Mm -hmm. And this is in 2011, basically. Yes. Around two years after the Green Movement started. Let's talk about that episode for a little bit, the Green Movement, because mm -hmm. a lot of things changed for the Islamic Republic, basically, after the events of 2009. How did that change your view of of? you know, contemporary Iran and the Islamic Republic and the post-revolution era? I, I mean, it, it changed because I got a sense that there was a real, um, before 2009, before the election of 2009, which is probably one of the most exciting elections. I was there covering that election with Ann Curry for NBC News. Mm -hmm. um, we spent two and a half weeks in, in Tehran and Isfahan, uh, and just roaming around covering the the whole election period and going to the rallies and going to um even Hatami had a rally and and things like that and filming and and made basically a documentary about it it was an incredibly exciting time and it felt like this is really kind of like this is this is Iran going through some major changes. If you thought Khatami's mm -hmm. time was going to be moderate or or even liberal, this is going to be 10 times that. It felt mm -hmm. that way. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, what happened with the election is whether or not it was stolen, and, and, and most people think it was, but uh, <laughs> most mm -hmm. people who, you know, examined it thought, if not stolen, there was some irregularities that should have been addressed. Mm -hmm. um, but this, I, I want—I don't want to get into that. But the disappointment was, you know, very obvious. Um, what happened, and then it, the securitization of society sort of happened after that. I mean, I think the the the, the, the nizam, the system, the Islamic system, decided that um, after seeing four million people on the streets similar to what happened during the Shah's time. And, mm -hmm. and these are people who remember the Shah's uh, ouster, and, and I remember it very well. You kind of sensed that this was something that was, you know, uh, similar to that. And if this grew, it would definitely threaten uh, the system. 
And I think that realizing that there are that many people, albeit people who are, you know, of the middle and upper classes more than the, the working classes and people who are a little bit more comfortable and can afford to spend time on the streets and can afford to, you know, uh, ask for change mm-hmm. um, because they're not busy trying to make a living for their for their family or make, put food on the table. Albeit that, they still sense that there's a danger to the system um there's there's some deep dissatisfaction if they think that their vote is not going to be is going to be stolen so um you sense that security change in iran uh i sensed it right away the first time i went back and i didn't go back after the election for i guess probably around 10 months because they're still on the movement was ongoing and there were still demonstrations and all that and, and and it was advisable for most people, or at least dual citizens who were involved in the media to not go back. There was mm-hmm. definitely this sort of suspicion of us. Um, but I eventually did go back uh, and wrote a, a long piece for Foreign Policy magazine. And, um, you know, I said that Iran is not a, uh, there's, there is a, it's not a security state in the sense that people think there aren't people at the airport with submachine guns looking at you and, and all that. But, I, you know, it is. It, it has changed. There's definitely a changed, uh, change in the uh, in society, and I think that's continued until Rouhani was elected. I think there was a brief moment when Rouhani was elected that that felt that way a little bit. Um, although, as we know, that they continue to to arrest dual citizens and particularly high profile ones. So since since Rouhani's election, I've only been back twice. And actually, both times in a very you know short period of time, right after he was elected to 2013, and then um, advised not to go back anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, the, basically, the Green Movement was the most serious challenge to the foundation of the Islamic Republic since the time of the revolution, and it had this brought this perception of an imminent collapse of the regime or, you know, this this um, idea of regime change that many in the diaspora exiles have had for for decades since the beginning of the Islamic Republic. But it's it's already been 10 years and the imminent collapse of the regime hasn't happened. We still see protests. The protests are massive. Last November was one year before that. But what do you think about that, this perception that every time there are mass protests, that are, they're interpreted by some as the imminent collapse? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to see why, because, I mean, you compare it to, let's say, the Arab Spring, or you compare it to Egypt. I mean, mass protests bring about a collapse, um, and there's an alternative. I think what's happened with Iran, and, and this is for the you know benefit of the regime, I guess, is that there isn't a a central kind of opposition that shows itself to be an alternative that people can latch on to. Mm-hmm. Even with the green movement, it was like, you know, you guys tell us to come out and vote. You say that we're an Islamic democracy. That's what you call yourselves. And when we do vote, you steal our election. So what's the point? Why should we vote if you're going to do that? And there was just a real disappointment that didn't feel like Musavi or Karubi were saying, we're, you know, down with the Islamic Republic, we're going to create a secular republic, or we're going to create an Islamic Republic that's completely different. There's not going to be a supreme leader. There's not going to be expediency council. There's not going to be, do you know what I mean? There was none of mm-hmm. that. 
and then the people outside the country, if it's the MEK or the monarchists or, or some other regime change groups, um, I mean, they, they, they don't seem to have any ability to, to, to garner real support among the population in Iran. And there is a big difference between, at least from my perspective in looking at it, because I was old enough, unfortunately, <laughs> to have seen the Islamic revolution from afar. I was in DC at the time, but you know, mm-hmm. you saw it every day. It was a big news. It was big news in America on television. You saw it, the headlines in the papers every day, deep, deep reporting, 60 minutes, you know. Um, so, but the big difference was the Shah may have been popular among the upper middle class people who benefited from that kind of regime, but there was no loyalty per se. Um, and with the Islamic Republic, there is a loyalty among a segment of the population. And it's not an mm-hmm. insignificant segment. It may be, I don't know what it is. It might be 30%, it might be 25%, it might be 50%. Mm-hmm. But it's the loyalty is there because of religion. And when you religion is a very strong, I mean, you know, it's a very, very strong motivation. Um, and that loyalty has prevented the kind of collapse that you would have expected uh, if it had been, for example, if Iran had a monarchy and had 4 million people come to the street and then another 2 million or another 4 million or, you know, that kind of, a monarchy would collapse much more quickly unless it was such a beloved monarchy. But there's, you know, very few monarchies that have that kind of ideological loyalty um, Mm -hmm. anymore. Perhaps, you know, previous centuries they did, but, and, and now it's 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 not practical so this is an advantage that the 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 islamic republic has and it's something that is um you know for people who advocate regime change is is probably disappointing but it's something that they should think about the uh, people who who uh, advocate regime changes it's you know the the structure of the opposition which is based mostly outside Iran. Of course, there you know there's MEK people in Iran. There's monarchists in Iran. There's people who would love for the monarchy to find a way back to Iran, and they could just like you know uh, live their lives the way they want to. Um, mm. But I don't see any real movement. Um, I mean, we hear about the Saudi Arabia funding monarchists and funding the MEK and, and all that, or Israel doing the same thing. But I don't think either one of those countries really expects either one of those opposition groups, which are the two biggest, I, su- I suppose, uh, or the two most you know, popular, uh, to have any success in Iran. So it's sort of like, you know, let's, let's, let's have a thorn in the side of the Islamic Republic because they know and we know um, that neither one of these groups will actually ever be successful, but let's just make it uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's there's the base of the supporters of the regime and also the fact that they have the power, they have weapons and, you know, the the government is willing, the state is willing to repress and, you know, crack down on any kind yeah, of... Yeah, the state, the state is willing to do that, um, but it, it, it's not always up to the state. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's questionable whether the Shah... If he had listened to some of his generals and he had, you know, fired on way more demonstrators than they actually did fire on, and 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 if the Shah had stayed and and you know mowed down demonstrators in the way that uh, other regimes have done, or or even the Islamic Republic has done on some occasions, um, the question is whether the troops would have gone ahead with it. You know, mm-hmm. it's very hard. You know, Rizat Kapuscinski wrote 
a really great book at the time after the revolution. He was the Polish uh, author and journalist who was based in Tehran for the revolution. I mean, he was sent there um, mm -hmm. by a Polish uh, television or a Polish uh, newspaper at the time Poland was communist. But anyway, he wrote this thing. And in, in, in that book, he, he talks about one episode where there's a huge demonstration. And he's looking at a young soldier, a conscript, who lifts his rifle to shoot and then slowly puts it down. And he says that that's when I knew that the revolution was going to be successful. You can tell a soldier to shoot, but if he doesn't shoot, there's not much you can do about it. Um, and we haven't had that. I mean, we've had the Islamic Republic has a loyal, loyal base, which it can rely on, which is not the Artesh. It's to some extent the Revolutionary Guard, but not even the Revolutionary Guard completely. It's more the Basij. And that's a very particular you know, cadre of people that they have cultivated, the regime has cultivated, to be the guardians of the revolution in a way. The Islamic uh, Revolutionary Guards are the guardians of the revolution. The Basij are the, are, the, are the shock troops, as it were. They're the ones on those motorcycles. So mm -hmm. I think that they are unlikely to disobey orders. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2011, I was there for the anniversary of the Green Movement. So it was two years after. And I was on Valia uh, Street. And um, I was going to go and try to take a bus. And there was probably a thousand motorcycle guys on with these black helmets and, you know, black uh, body armor kind of things. And I was crossing the street and one guy came zooming right up to me. I thought, oh, God, he's going to like beat me or something. And I said, um, what is it? And he just lifted his, his uh his visor off his helmet. He said, oh, nothing. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to scare you. <laughs> but I obviously wasn't the kind of person that he was looking for or was going mm -hmm. to go after. And I, I wasn't, it, there wasn't even a demonstration yet, but it was near Van Ack. And so, but those shock troops are, are, are perfectly willing to, um, you know, do anything basically mm -hmm. to keep, to keep the power in the hands of the regime. So let's, uh, Fast forward a little bit to the nuclear negotiations. I know mm -hmm. I was there, you were there, we're observing um, what was happening. It was truly historic, basically. Iran and the United States, after three decades, sitting down publicly at the table, talking and eventually agreeing on something. Yes. And then that deal didn't have much time to live until Correct. Donald Trump came in and he basically tried to kill it. It's still alive on life support, as some say, but um, it's, it's, it's in pretty bad condition. Yes. And now we're at this point of right now, Donald Trump's admin administration leaving soon and a new administration, Joe Biden, coming in. Do you think that the next administration, Joe Biden's administration, has enough time and the political capital to return to the JCPOA and basically resume, pick up things where they left off four years ago? Well, there's very little time, but I think, you know, if there's a will, yes. Um, I don't know about political capital yet. I think, um, I don't think Biden knows that yet. I think after Georgia has a runoff election for the two senators, it'll be clearer if uh, the Senate is if it's possible for the Senate to be controlled by the Democrats, if the House and the Senate and the executive branch are controlled by the Democrats, I think um, you know he might feel like he's got uh, political capital to do things um, that might not 
ordinarily be be feasible politically. But there will be pressure. There's Democratic hawks, as we know. You know, Chuck mm-hmm. Schumer in the Senate was against the deal. Um, uh, even when, I mean, he was a he is a Democrat, but he was against Obama's. He voted against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Menendez of New Jersey, Senator Menendez, again, Democrat, voted against it. Um, th- these voices, and these are powerful voices, uh, especially Chuck Schumer, um, in the party. And um, people like Chuck Schumer are going to be hesitant to advise Biden to jump in when um, they'll say, yeah, we disagree with Trump. This maximum pressure is all you know, dumb because it hasn't done anything. In fact, if anything, it's made Iran more dangerous and more powerful in the region. So we disagree with all that. But why would we give up the leverage that Trump has created for us? Uh, in, unintentionally, perhaps, but was created for us. We all know the Rial is, you know, in free fall, basically, or has lost whatever seventy percent of its value since Trump came, became um, withdrew from the deal. Uh, you know, the, the, the economy is suffering. They're exporting at best less than a million barrels a day at best, which is you know one third of what they were exporting at best again. Mm-hmm. So they and they have no access to their to their. Uh, in a foreign exchange. So why would we give that all up and go right back and lift all the sanctions and, you know, they can go back to their bad behavior. And and, and there's this thing in America and and I think it's, you know, bipartisan. This is not Trump and it's not, um, you know, Biden. Everybody calls Iran's behavior bad. You have yet to come across, I mean, Anthony Blinken, who's the sec- new Secretary of State, everybody is, says, always, you know, they always qualify, Iran's bad behavior, bad behavior. And this is something that the Iranians object to, of course, because, you know, when you talk about bad behavior, let's talk about, you know, Saudi Arabia and attacking Yemen. Let's talk about, you know, butchering Qashroshi in, in, in the Istanbul consulate. Let's talk about bad behavior you know, everywhere in the region. And there is, of course, there's bad behavior. There's bad behavior by by the U.S. Um, and has been bad behavior by the U.S. So it's kind of a thing that's thrown out there. And But um, if there's a will, if Biden wants to really bring Iran back to compliance with the JCPOA, which he will then be able to say, look, when I took office and Trump had left the White House, Iran was three months or two months away from a nuclear bomb if they chose to make a dash for it. Mm-hmm. Now, with them back in compliance, we're back to being more than a year. It buys us time. So, you know, he could rationalize things. I mean, if you want to rationalize things to the American public, you can. You can say, yeah, we'll deal with Iran's bad behavior later, but let's first get this two month, you know, breakout time, which is another red herring, but it's there nonetheless. It's in the narrative about the Iranian nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. Let's get that two month breakout time down to uh, back up to over a year, which is what we did in the Obama administration. Again, it, you know, there's going to be all kinds of different advisors telling him what to do. But between, you know, he takes office at the end of January, then Iran has Nowruz. <laughs> we have our new year where Iran shuts down basically for three weeks. And then immediately after that, it's the presidential campaign in Iran. In June, there's a new president-elect. And August, uh, the new president takes office. So between January 20th and I would say April, it's not a whole lot of time. Um, not a whole lot of time. But if he wants to go into the JCPOA, I don't see a reason why. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Iran would would welcome it. Um, why wouldn't they? Because if, if by rejoining the JCPOA, if he also lifts sanctions, then why wouldn't they? 
you know, why wouldn't the Iranian government welcome that? They would. Rouhani has mm -hmm. made it clear that he would. Mm -hmm. uh, they're talking about lifting all the sanctions, and and that's a little complex because Trump has changed some of some of the nuclear related sanctions which were lifted under UN resolution 2231 which codified in, into international law mm -hmm. the JCPOA has has changed some of those sanctions to be terror related sanctions um so you know like on, and then the specially designated uh, you know people like uh, Zarif who's the foreign minister or Zangane who's the oil minister i mean those things are just they'll have to be undone in order for iran to feel like you know they're back to the JCPOA. Um, and then, of course, Iran is probably going to, you know, try to strike a, a hard bargain in terms of any um, kind of guarantees by America. I don't think uh, there's some talk of, oh, compensation for our losses. But, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think the U.S. is, I don't think Iran even thinks that's a realistic goal to, to hold out for the U.S. to pay out of its own pocket billions of dollars to Iran for, for the losses Iran has suffered because of U.S. withdrawal, but I think uh, you know. To make a long story short, it's possible, but it's not going to be easy. Not going to be easy as joining the Paris Climate Agreement, which is just an executive order. It's done. U.S. is back in. Or the travel ban, which Biden has promised to. Yeah, it, that'll be reverse. lifted with an executive. Yeah, that'll be lifted mm -hmm. with an executive. It was a preposterous ban, and you know, even some Republicans thought it was preposterous. It's definitely racist so or bigoted. Mm -hmm. um, some of those things will be, yeah, some of the immigration stuff, visas, travel ban, all that. Now, the travel ban is also now because of COVID related partly to COVID. I mean, there's a travel ban on Europeans too. <laughs> it's not just Iranians who can't come here. But, you know, assuming that the vaccine takes hold and is distributed, you know, by the middle of next year, travel ban should be to all intents and purposes, you know, eliminated. I think there's this understanding probably on both sides of the idea of leverage. It's, as you said, we hear from hawkish Democrats, even some some of the hawkish circles in Europe, that Trump mm -hmm. sanctions and maximum pressure has provided this leverage for when Biden wants to return to the deal. And then it seems like the Iranians on their own side are now also coming up with their leverage, like you said, compensation for the damages done by Trump and also get asking for guarantees that the administration after Biden won't be able to again leave the deal. I mean, it sounds reasonable, but then at the same time, like you said, there's this golden window of opportunity that's a very short few months for Biden to rejoin. So how do you think these leverage points on both sides are complicating a return to the JCPOA or is it just posturing and then? No, I think it is complicating it. I mean, it is complicating it. I mean, one of the interesting things for me will be to see who's going to be the lead Iran czar. I mean, the climate czar is John Kerry, who was mm -hmm. the Iran point person before. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I can't see Anthony Blinken, you know, taking that role right away because it's an intensive role and he's going to be Secretary of State. He's got to fix the State Department. He's got to do a deal with China, Russia. He's got to deal with every country in the world, essentially. And Iran's going to be one of them, but it's going to have to be a Deputy Secretary of State. Um, and who's going to have that file? Is it going to be Wendy Sherman? And Wendy knows Zarif, she knows Ravanchi, she knows Arachi, she knows Hamid Baidinejad. He knows them very well. They sat in negotiating rooms together for two years. Mm 
mm-hmm. you know, at times for hours and hours on end. You remember, you'd be sitting in the lobby of the hotel waiting for <laughs> eight, we eight, hour, eight <laughs> hours to get some news from one of these people. So, so um, drinking endless $9 espressos, as I used to say. <laughs> but, um, but so if, if it's someone like that, and there is a and he or she has a mandate go make a deal it becomes a little bit more realistic to say it could probably be done um you know you know, also remember biden is you know going to be 78 years old he's going to be you know one of the oldest presidents or if not the oldest president in history to take office um he's had a very long career in, in politics he's not corrupt he's incorruptible uh he will leave office with a very good legacy, a very good reputation, um, he's not going to really damage himself if he if he rejoins the JCPOA. Something Obama did when it was popular, not just in among most Americans at the time, but across the world was a popular deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what's he? He's not thinking. Oh, I'm going to be running for a second term, and then I'm going to want to have this and that as my legacy and all this. It's like, but why? You know, he can give the mandate to somebody to say, "Go make a deal and make it fast," because we don't have a lot of time. We got to do this before the next president. We at least got to be in a position where, you know, even if we have to deal with the next president, that we're close to um, resolving this issue. And as I said, the breakout. I mean, his best, in my opinion, his best uh, argument is that. Iran is 10 months from, I'm oh, sorry, two months or three months from, from a nuclear weapon. We, this is an emergency. This is what we were dealing with at the, you know, when we first started negotiating with them when Rouhani came in. It's like they're at a breakout and they're doing 20% enrichment. Now they're not doing 20% now, but they've got advanced centrifuges. There's a lot of, I mean, the leverage for Iran is actually less about making demands. It's more about, yeah, okay, let's not make a deal. We've survived four years of maximum pressure fine we'll just keep building up a stockpile we'll keep doing more advanced centrifuges we'll keep building our underground facilities mm-hmm. fine you know we're not afraid um you don't want to deal with us fine um you know so i think that they have leverage iran has leverage too in many ways uh in in that sense in the sense that this is something that uh you know and People talk about you know, Israel might bomb Iran if, if, or the U.S. might bomb Iran if the, if there's a sense that you know the breakout time is down to a month or three weeks, or, or there's some suspicion that they might be developing a nuclear weapon. Um, yeah, but uh, you know everyone knows there's a reason why Israel hasn't bombed Iran. There's a reason why the U.S. hasn't bombed Iran. This is not Syria. This is not Iraq. It's a completely different kettle of fish, and and, and I think everybody recognizes that, and especially especially the incoming Biden administration recognizes that. I mean, these are professionals. You may may or may not like them, but they are professionals mm-hmm. and they and they know what they're doing and they know Iran. They, mm-hmm. they, Jake, Jake Sullivan, who's going to be the national security advisor, you know, was one of the negotiators um, for the U.S., at least in the initial stages. Mm-hmm. Well, now that you bring that up, we just saw a report from Israel saying that Israeli military is preparing or is on high alert for a potential strike by the Trump administration on Iran in the in the last two months. You talked about the Biden administration and how they see mm-hmm. things. But what do you think about this outgoing admin, this, this Trump who has lost the election the next two months and then this basically reading from Israel of a potential strike on Iran. 
Well, I think, I mean, it was reported, it was reported by the New York Times that, you know, last week Trump asked for um, mm-hmm. uh, options to attack Iran. But uh, asking for, I mean, of course, Israel is going to be on high alert. I think, you know, Saudi Arabia is on high alert. The Emirates are on high alert. Everyone's on high alert right now in this period where you've got a completely unpredictable United States. Nothing is predictable about the United States uh, mm-hmm. at this point in this, this administration. Uh, the things that Trump has done or have been unprecedented in the history of the United States. So being on high alert in terms of something could happen, yes, I think uh, it's only natural. I'd be surprised if they weren't on high alert. What is it? I mean, because Israel knows that if the U.S. attacks Iran, Israel might get blamed. If it doesn't get blamed, the blowback will affect Israel. Um, so you know, they're going to be on high alert. That doesn't. But I think it's partly kind of like, you know, I don't know, you can call it a psychological war. I think these leaks from the government, Israeli government, or leaks from the U.S. government are just to put kind of pressure on Iran, I think, more than anything else. Uh, I don't think Trump is has any intention of attacking Iran. I think I don't think he wants to leave office uh, in, in a state of war. I don't think he wants to leave office with the potential of American soldiers being killed and him being blamed for that. I mean, right now, I mean, he's playing golf. He didn't attend the G20 summit. The G20 summit, which was about in Saudi Arabia, the Saudis were hoping that you know, Corona would be gone by now. They were hoping that this was going to be their big, you know, coming out party. You know, the G20 summit with all these heads of state going to to, to Saudi Arabia. Well, it ended up being a virtual summit, but it was on Saturday, and and Trump was playing golf and didn't bother to show up. And the whole point of the summit this year was how we're going to have a coordinated worldwide, you know, response to the, to the virus and and the vaccine and everything. And he couldn't even be bothered to attend that or pretend to attend it. You could actually pretend to attend it by, you know, not saying anything, but just putting a (laughs) pair of headphones on. But instead he played golf. So I think that's where Trump is. I think he's checked out. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, Pompeo and the Pentagon or anybody, they can't start a war. They'd have to have Trump approve it. And I just don't see Trump wanting to, you know, have even one American soldier killed because of him at this point. He wants to go off and do something else. And if he may want to run again. If he doesn't run again, he certainly wants to see Ivanka perhaps run. Um, he's not going to do anything like that. I, I don't think so. I mean, of course, that said, who am I to say? I mean, I never thought he'd do the things he did in the last four years anyway. So he could do anything. Mm-hmm. But I think mean, war is on a whole other level. You know, go back to the thing about, you know, the drone when Iran shot down the drone and didn't retaliate, you know, 11 minutes or however many minutes it was before they were going to attack. It was like, oh, call it off. He's not a very courageous man when it comes to that. He's not bold in that way. He's bold. His, he has bold rhetoric, but follow through isn't very, isn't very good. Well, yeah, I want to go back to the $9 espresso in the, in the, uh, expensive um, European hotels. hotels. Yes. yes. And uh, basically the nuclear negotiations, because we know the incoming Biden administration, they will just be rejoining a deal that's already made. But back then it was a deal in the making. And like I said, it's truly historic, even seen as a miracle by many people, observers, myself included on both sides that, okay, yes, negotiations were happening for for about a decade, but to see an actual deal um, in real life was just very shocking. What do you think, and you have this amazing perspective on both sides, what do you think was that perfect recipe that brought the two sides to the table and, and resulted in that deal? Because 
everyone sees Iran as an irrational actor, like you said, a bad actor. And mm-hmm. also no one thought the U.S. would, you know, eventually make concessions to to a small country or a bad actor like Iran. But it did happen with the help of mm-hmm. Europeans, with the participation of the Chinese and Russians. But what do you think was that perfect recipe that made it happen? And I want to talk about this because the Biden administration will be rejoining the deal, but they're also looking into the future for more negotiations and more potential deals. So what was that perfect recipe back then? I think it's 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 one word, or actually two words, Javad Zarif. I mean, I think that's, that's you know, that's the recipe. Um, you know, his time in America, and, and he had participated on a lower level in the negotiations in 2003 during the Bush administration, when Hassan Rouhani was the Secretary of the Supreme National Security Council, and therefore, by definition, under Iran's rules back then, by definition, the chief nuclear negotiator. So, but Zarif was, was the UN ambassador, and his role as UN... He, because of his English and because of living in America and having you know, gone to high school and university here and everything, it's like, oh, well, naturally, he's a diplomat that we were going to use in the negotiations. But this time, he was in charge of the negotiations. He had a mandate. He had a mandate from the Supreme Leader who trusts him, uh, by all accounts, likes him, uh, understands his value to Iran. And, you know, John Kerry, I think, you know, you could put him as the as as, the, as an asterisk in terms of the perfect recipe. John Kerry, going back to his days in Vietnam or post-Vietnam, um, has been someone who's been all about peace and not about conflict and um, uh, had met Zarif many, many times as a senator, as Iranian diplomats in, in America, and they're only in, only in New York, uh, can meet with uh, Iran Americans uh, who aren't in the executive branch, even at the times when it was banned for an American uh, official to to meet with an Iranian official, uh, senators and Congress persons are are obviously exempt from that. Um, they don't take instructions from 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 the executive branch. So he had, he he'd met in the same way that Zarif has met with Biden many times um, throughout his career. Uh, it's natural. If John Kerry would ask the Iranian ambassador to the UN, I'd like to come and see you. I'm going to be in New York. Of course, you're going to you know, accept that invitation or ask him to come and see you. So that was, that was the recipe. And I think that you kind of need that rapport between two people who can understand where the other is coming from, even if they disagree with the other person, but can understand where the motivation is and, can, and have a will to once and for all end this with this like greater goal of like, this is going to be a first step. Isn't this great? It's been, you know, 35 years since the revolution, you know, so many things have gone wrong in terms of the relationship between the U S and, and Iran, or even the West and Iran. This is the opportunity. The first black president, you know, you've got John Kerry as secretary of state now, who's not a hawk in the way that his predecessor, Hillary Clinton was in terms of, you know, being a democratic hawk in, in many ways. Um, so that was really, I think, it. I mean, we saw that. Uh, it was criticized, as you know, by the uh, media, hardline media or the conservative media in Iran. You know, Zarif taking a walk on the, on, on, by, the by the lake in Geneva with, with uh, Kerry. I mean, those are, those are the ways you make diplomacy work. You know, if you sit across the room and, and just lecture each other, well, you're never going to get anywhere. And I think both sides knew that. I mean, under uh, Jali Lee, before Zarif took over that file, uh, nuclear file. Um, he, 
the complaint by Americans was he just sit there and lecture America all the time. So it's not really a negotiation. Um, and if we ever go back to that, nothing's going to happen. It's a good news that John Kerry is going to be in the administration, cabinet level, although not assigned to the to the nuclear file or not assigned to the to, to Iran in any way. But he's going to be there. He's had the experience. Wendy Sherman, I believe, is going to be have some role uh, based on the fact that she was advising the Biden administration. And she was, as we know, there all the time during the nuclear negotiations and has very good rapport with uh, Ravanchi and Arokchi, uh, who, if they're negotiating again, they understand each other. Um, you know, Ravanchi was educated in America as well and is very good English. Uh, Arokchi was not educated here, but he has gotten to know America very well because of those intense or Americans very well because of those intense uh, two years that they spent, um, you know, in the same room together. So I think that, you know, it can happen. I mean, that it was proven that it could happen. Um, I don't think anybody felt like they got away with something. Iran didn't get away with anything. And I think America didn't really get away with anything. It did what it said it was going to do. It said, you know, Obama and Kerry said they're going to, and Biden, they all said we're going to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Pretty much the entire world agreed that that's what the JCPOA did, in fact, accomplish. Um, it guaranteed. Iran always claims it's not seeking a nuclear weapon, but the JCPOA guaranteed that you know, even if they're lying, they would be caught up. So, yeah, again, the recipe is, is, is having a will to do it and having the right people doing the negotiating. Well, on that note, Human, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, Negat. And that was the episode, The Ayatollahs No Longer Differ, from the Iran podcast. It was first aired on November 28th of last year. My thanks to Nagar for sharing the podcast with us. And that'll do it for this episode of Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest another great podcast we may not know about, please do. You can email me at podcast at foreignpolicy.com. We're all ears. And for more information about FP Podcasts, please check out our website, foreignpolicy.com, or join our Facebook group. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, and I'll see you soon.